Yeah. Uh, my name is Tepiso, as everyone has been introduced. I'm going to read from the book of Psalms, chapter 25, 1 to 5 and 15. In you, O Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. Let, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. But shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are, for you are my God, my Savior. And my hope is in you all day long. My eyes are ever on the Lord. And for only he will release my feet from the snare. Amen. Thanks, Tepiso. You can give that to Nick's. I'm sorted. Thank you. When I went um, on my first school hiking trip, I don't know if you ever remember those days. That feels like many years ago, and I won't uh, reminisce on how many decades ago that was. But I can never forget the first time our whole grade, I was in a big uh, school, and there were probably, I can't remember, upwards of 150 people in our grade. And um, we would go on these hiking trips. You'd all get in the bus and uh, you would drive up to the Drakensberg, which is where I grew up in KZN, and then you would put on your backpacks, and you would head up into the mountains for either a night or two with your tent and your little rolled-up rubber um, mattress, and you would begin this journey. And what I always found in these hiking experiences, which was quite interesting, was that there were generally two different types of people that you would experience on a hiking trip. There was the, the guys who were hiking to finish. <laughs> they were hiking so that they could get home. They were the guys who in uh, my school who were basically going, I just want to finish this thing because on the other side of this, my TV is waiting. I can start doing the stuff I want to do. There was this sense of some people who just weren't there. Their minds were simply in this place of just trying to get it finished. I couldn't really understand those guys because then there were the, the other crew who somehow, probably their parents coaching them and taking them into the outdoors and showing them the wonder of what it meant to actually be in the outdoors, who actually thought that there was nowhere better to be than on those trails. There was nothing cooler to be doing with their time than to be getting blisters on the backs of their feet whilst they were walking in places they had never been and setting up tents that were very likely to almost get blown over that night. They thought it was the coolest thing they could do. And it was amazing to see the difference between the guys who were hiking to get home and the guys who were hiking to be in the present moment and to just love it. It was always interesting. We probably know the different types of personalities that are like that, and no judgment to the person who loves their Xbox. But the point was, was I found myself looking back at that this week and realizing that there's almost a similarity in the way that we view our spirituality, in the way that we walk with God. 
And I've found it quite interesting as we enter into a new uh, journey called the Psalms, which is really our look at a bunch of Psalms as we head in towards Christmas. And we're looking at upward invitations to sacred revelations, essentially going, there is a God who calls us on a journey of adventure to get to know Him, to enjoy the sights and the sounds of knowing Him. And really, it seems like as you walk with Jesus, there seem to be two different types of people. There are the me-centered, me-focused people who go, you know what, I'm in it for what I can get out of it. If I can just know that I've got my ticket to heaven, then you know what, I'm just going to get through this life with as much pleasure as I can. I just know it's sorted at the end. It's a sense of almost hiking to get to the end. It's a sense of kind of going, what's in it for me? Okay, cool, I'm going to hedge my bets, get as many of the good stuff. I'll take Jesus because I don't want the end to be that bad. But in the, in the interim, I'll take bits and pieces. It's a, it's a me-focused spirituality. Then there's the God-focused spirituality. There's the sense of a person who lives with a hunger to know more of God, to not just uh, have problems and need God, but to have a life that is centered around God. The me-focused uh, view of, the, uh, of God is often our view of God is determined by the size of our needs and our life situation. If I've got big needs, then I need, a, I need God to come through. If the needs are small, then you know what? It doesn't matter. I can get on with life myself. In the God-centered view, there's this sense of our view of God is determined by His revelation of Himself. There's no end to what you could discover about God. There's a sense of each step you take, you get to see more and more of what He's like and, and what you could find out because there's so much we don't know. It's the Einstein kind of analogy where the more I study, the more I realize I don't know. And the same is true of a person who has a God-centered view of God and of spirituality. They begin to want to know more. The spirituality that is the hiker, the me-centered hiker who wants to get home lives in survival mode, just getting enough of God to survive. The hiker who wants to explore and experience God is the one who's got in faith mode, who's always looking to see what more could I learn about God. And this kind of journey through the Psalms is our effort to try our best as a community, to try to step out of a world that is so fundamentally consumeristic that we don't even know we're doing it when we're doing it. We don't even know that we're trying to just get by so that we can get from God whatever we can and, and take God like a buffet meal and we just take what we need and we leave what we don't. And to, uh, in this next couple of weeks, as we head towards Christmas, we're going to look at the Psalms for God's sake. We're going to look at God for His glory, and we're going to look at everything we can in the psalmist's uh, view of God and try to discern who is God. And we're going to do less applying. I think at the end of the year, we're not looking for more lists of things from the preacher to tell us what to do, and so we're going to give you less application. What we want to do is give more revelation. We want to head into the end of the year with a big view of God, with a high view of who God is and what He's like. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's quite a haunting statement. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's incredible. 
He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. There's something about our view of God that eventually shapes how we live and what we do. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, Eugene Peterson writes it like this. He says, whenever though they, that's followers of Jesus, turn their face to God as Moses did, God removes the veil and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled out stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as obsolete. We're free of it. All of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of His face. And so we're being transfigured like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like Him. There's this amazing secret law of spirituality that the God that you see, you begin to become like. You begin to be more and more like the God that you understand to exist. And so the call for the Christian is not to try to create a God that we want. It's to look in the Scriptures and to see the God that is. And not to ask God to fit to the size of our experience, but to take our lives to fit to the size of who He actually is. That's what we're meant to do. But it's very easy. And it's often very subtle when our lives tend to try to squeeze God into the shape we want Him to be and to twist Him and turn Him so that He fits the kind of God that we need or we want. Let me tell you this. The God that we need or want is incomparable to the God that is. He is so much better than the one that we try to fashion sometimes because we want some relief or we want a, a quick out from our pain. Hey, why is it so important? Why does our view of God matter so much? Well, it matters for the sake of truth. Who wants to live in a world created by a God and you don't actually know Him? It matters for our transformation because we become transformed into the image of, of the one that we see. So let's make sure that we know who we're seeing. Let's know the God that is. Hey, it matters as, a, as an issue of love. You see, if you know the true God, you become able to represent that God to the world. And there's nothing more loving that you could do in all your life than to reveal the true God of the Bible. There's nothing better to do. Maybe you're uh, sort of uh, been dragged along or you've been coming for a while and you're still not even sure you believe all this stuff about Jesus. I'm honestly so stoked. We think about you often and I think about you when I prepare messages. And today I've thought about you in the sense of in so many ways I'm speaking predominantly to Christians here. I'm talking to people who follow Jesus. And, and maybe you just want to listen in because one of the tragedies about Christianity over the last couple of uh, decades and probably for, for many centuries is that Christians have done a great job of essentially twisting God to shape their needs rather than looking up at the God that is and saying, wow. And so we as a church want to do better and better, not at trying to twist God into our shape, but in, in a sense, seeing the God that is. When our view of God is too small and it's too me-centered, we ultimately turn God into a kind of butler. You know, a cosmic butler, you ring the bell, and, uh, and we do it for a number of reasons. Maybe it's because you just want to keep the fairly good times going. 
Like, I don't, want to, I don't want life to get any worse than it is. Things seem to be going pretty well for me. You know, I've got the grades, got the job, got the husband or the wife and the kids, and, and it seems like things are roughly going well. So keep pitching up at church as often as I can and do what the pastor says because that's like, you know, maybe we'll just keep the good times rolling. It's like a strange superstition, really, but we can turn our faith into a, a superstition and we do bargains with God. God, I'll keep coming to church. You keep the good times rolling. We don't even know that it's happening. Or maybe to just keep the bad stuff away, some people do it. You know, just, just keep doing the basic Christian stuff because it seems to have warded off like the really nasty stuff, like the, 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 the worst stuff. It's also a version of, of spiritual superstition. Or to get through the bad stuff if or when they come. And so we're like, you know what, I better just stick around because bad stuff does happen and I, you know, I want to make sure I can get through it. All those aren't bad reasons in themselves because God is good and He's really kind, but that can't be the main reason. We want to know God and we want to find ourselves and our imaginations caught up in God. We do it because God is. Do you know that the, the writers in the Scripture, they never write the question of whether God is. They take for granted that God is that's a, when Moses has this revelation. He, he says, who should I say is, is, is uh, sending me? He says, say, I am is sending you. I, I am. And, and from then on, the scriptures uh, basically are filled with people who write going, there's no question. God is. And so this beautiful psalm is written by King David. And King David is a most fascinating human being. One of my favorite parts of the psalm is verse 15, where he says this, My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will release my feet from the snare. You might be going, ha ha, I caught you, Rog. Look, he's asking for help. He's the guy who only wants God when his times are tough, when he's going through a difficult moment. Not so fast. Not so fast. He, he certainly does seem to need God in the times that are tough, but he has this amazing sense where he says, my eyes are ever on the Lord. They're ever on the Lord. He doesn't take his eyes off of God. He's got the sense that whether my foot is stuck in a snare or whether things are going swimmingly and I am getting A's all the way, my eyes are ever on the Lord. This amazing sense of hunger to know God to get to grow in revelation of who he is and what he's like, not just in the tough times. But we'll talk a bit more about how counterintuitive that is, by the way. Because although we might say, yeah, I go to God when things are tough, he says, my eyes are ever on the Lord, even though my foot is stuck in a snare. Uh, uh, to be stuck in a snare was to be trapped by the enemy. We're not sure, theologians aren't sure, is it, is it to be trapped in war? Is it to be trapped um, by, you know, something like a, a hunter who's, who's got his uh, trapped a snare? We, we're not exactly sure, but the point is, is it's, it's, an, it's not what you want. And the natural inclination of anyone whose feet are stuck in a snare is to look down and to solve the problem, to untie yourself. I mean, come on, that's logic, any human being who's got any logic about them says, if my feet are tied up in a snare, I look down and I undo it. But this psalmist says, no, my feet are in a snare, but my eyes are ever on the Lord. Ed Sheeran, it's, let's lighten the mood here. 
who likes a bit of Ed. He's worth $60 million. At one point, he had nine songs in the UK top 10. Sound cool? He's one of the most successful musicians uh, around. And um, he writes this in his album, Divide, 2017. He, used to, he says this, I used to think that nothing could be better than touring the world with my songs. I chased the, perfect, the, the pictured perfect life. Anybody want to sing this for me? Because I can't. I think they painted it wrong. I think that money is the root of all evil and fame is hell. Relationships and hearts you fixed, they break as well. 60 million bucks, all the fame in the world couldn't get him what he wanted. Justin Bieber, probably more famous. We're getting into the real high-thinking minds of this world. Um, sold more than 50 million records in the U.S. alone. He's worth more than $200 million. That's a fair amount of money. By all appearances, it seems like he's, he's got a lot going for him. He says this, you get lonely, you know, when you're on the road. People see the glam and the amazing stuff. They don't know the other side. This life can rip you apart. I get depressed all the time. I feel isolated. I wouldn't wish this upon anyone. Let's think about other minds who, who have given some deep thought to life. Voltaire, 19, uh, 1694, he says, We all look for happiness, but without knowing where to find it. Like drunkards who look for their house, knowing dimly that they have one. I love how many incredible people have got to the pinnacle of what people think life is all about and are so radically depressed, are so disappointed with what they find. Andre Agassi said he wished someone had told him that when he got to the top, there was nothing there. There was nothing there. And yet somehow, by some strange law of cultural pressure and society, we all look at me and we go, yeah, 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 but I've got to go home and earn some money. Yeah, 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 I've got to go home and I've got to get my kids to the best school. Yeah, 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 thanks, Rog, but I've got stuff I need to do. And we find ourselves chasing subtly after all the things that we know can't deliver. And yet David looks and he says, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. And I love this because it's going to play a kind of anchoring role into the way that we look through the Psalms over the next while. And the psalmist David looks at God and he begins to trust him over and over and over. In fact, as elders, we looked at this very passage and we broke it down into, you know, the different attributes of God that we could pick up as we read through the psalm. And you'll see that we didn't uh, read the whole psalm and maybe you want to go home and, and look through it. But we had a feast. We, we actually had to call it because we had we'd looked at the psalm and we saw how God was merciful. We saw how God was a guide. We saw how God was righteous. We saw how God is kind. And as you read through the psalm, one of the amazing questions you need to ask as you look in the psalms is not oh my goodness, this psalmist is amazing. This is poetry I've never imagined. The main thing you want to do when you read the psalms is to go, who is the psalmist looking at? What can he see about God that I haven't yet seen before? And how can I get what he's seen and put it into my mind and then let it filter down into my heart? 
Remember last week we spoke about the stories we tell ourselves. If we could put that slide up. We've got this amazing cycle in our lives. Next slide. Basically, it goes like this. We have an event in our lives that happens, an activating event. Tough stuff happens. Good things happen. And essentially, all the events in our lives lead to us telling ourselves a story. So uh, let's think of an example right now. Um, you get to work, and one of your colleagues is pretty unfriendly to you. They're normally friendly, but this time they're not. Now, what do you do in that moment? You, 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 there's so many stories you could tell yourself in that moment, but what you do in that story moment is really crucial. Maybe you go, oh my gosh, I've done something to offend them. I must have. I must have. I've done something that's offended them. And so you tell your st yourself that story. Now that you've told yourself that story, there's a consequent emotion. That emotion is whatever it may be. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's fear because you actually thought this friendship was going well. Now you're feeling guilty and kind of afraid and you're dreading the rest of the day because they're being offish and you're not feeling like trying to work on that friendship and you, you really just don't have the energy for this because life's been tough already. You've had a tough week. It's Friday morning and now this colleague is doing this. And so that actually leads to a little bit of uh, frustration and a bit of bitterness. And so you cross now. And that consequent emotion leads to a dictated behavior because by the time you cross, you're going... It's their fault, actually. They did it. And you know, it's not just their fault. It's my kids. They've actually, they got me grumpy before I even got here. They were just annoying me all morning. And so it's them and it's the kids. And you know what? Of course, it's my husband. Because if he could have just helped me with the kids, this whole thing wouldn't be so frustrating. And by the end of the day, the story you've told yourself has led to a dictated behavior, which has an effect that basically you drag your feet around the day, and you're grumpy, and you're unhelpful, and everyone who you work with looks at you and goes, something's off about this person. And what's amazing about this cycle is that we go through this cycle round and round and round, hundreds of hundred, uh, upon hundreds of times every single week until we are formed into a certain type of person. We just become a person based on the story we tell ourselves, the consequent emotion, the dictated behavior, and we become this pathway. We become well-worn paths because the story often is the same. Somebody offends us, that's what we believe. Somebody does well and gets a promotion that we don't get, that's the story we tell ourselves. That's the emotion we feel. Somebody, a good friend, gets something that we wish we had, the story we tell ourselves, whatever it may be. And what's so fascinating, what's so important that A.W. Toes is trying to teach us here is that in this moment of belief, in this moment of the story we tell ourselves, is actually the view of God that we have will shape how we respond to things. How you understand God to be will shape the story that you tell yourself. You see, if your God is distant and disinterested, isn't a God of grace, has no love, then you know what? You will have very little grace in the moment where you walk at a, 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 to a colleague who's not friendly. But what if you woke up that morning and you realized that your life was tough and your kids also had a tough life and they made your life pretty tough? But amazingly, you had also just looked at a God of grace who loved you and you made your life tougher than your kids make your own life. And actually, you were more rebellious towards God in your life than your kids are towards you. And you find yourself walking out of your time with Jesus in the scriptures going, oh my goodness, he loves me. And I know my kids are difficult and I know my spouse is difficult and I know my colleagues are really tricky and difficult. But here's the thing. 
God, I'm difficult as well. And God has been gracious to me. And so I'm going to walk into the world. And the moment an activating event happens, there's going to be a story I tell myself. And the story I'm going to tell myself in that moment will be something that's defined by who God uh, is and what he tells me about the story. Because it would be very different in that moment if I had just recognized that God was a God of grace. And I saw that colleague who was grumpy and a bit offish, and I went to them and I said, hey, how are you? Are you okay? Instead of running away being too tired, I would have maybe had a little bit of energy and a bit of grace and said, how are you? What's going on? What's been happening in your life? Because somewhere deep down, I've got a well of grace. I've got a revelation that God has been kind to me. Maybe I need to be kind to others. God has listened to my grumbling this morning. Maybe I should listen to someone else's. Do you know, actually, I was a bit offish to God, but I received his grace, and he keeps giving me grace. Hey, I'm going to move towards this person. Do you know that 99% of the time, the story you told yourself was total junk? And you get to that person, and they say, no, honestly, I'm having the worst day ever. I woke up, and, you know, person, I found out that a loved one wasn't well. They got the worst diagnosis we could have imagined. Oh, wow. Suddenly an opportunity has arisen rather than an obstacle because of the story we told ourselves. And I want to put it to us that really the story we tell ourselves gets defined by the revelation of God that we have. And I want to suggest just two things today, just two aspects of the multifaceted character of God that I think we can just learn as we read the scriptures, as we read the Psalms, I want to suggest today we see two things about God. Firstly, we see that God is faithful, and secondly, we see that God is a guide. It's a piece I read in uh, uh, verse 1 through to 3. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. I love these lines, mainly because of who is writing them. You see, this is King David, who's writing a psalm, okay? Now, King David is the kind of guy who, when he walks to the gym, everyone goes, I want biceps like his. He was a warrior. He's the kind of guy who, before he was even king, the, 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 the people in the city of Jerusalem were singing, he is the one who's winning all the battles for us. He was the kind of guy people were making songs about. Justin Bieber, eat your heart out. He wasn't just writing songs. He was having songs written about him. Not only that, he actually was a poet. How's that? Like the, the full spectrum of the alpha male. He can win battles, and then he writes poems and plays music. I mean, ladies, this guy is the full package. And then add to that, he's just an incredible leader. He's this gracious, kind-hearted leader who took leadership of Israel and just knew how to love people. He genuinely was this incredible package of a man. He was, he was such an incredible dude. But that's not what he leans on. Look how he writes about his trust. He could have trusted in his wealth. But he didn't. He could have trusted in his power. He could have trusted in his incredible leadership skills. He could win people. He could influence people. He could do so much. And yet he writes and he says, in you, Lord, my God, I trust. 
I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame. He's got this incredible awareness of God's faithfulness in the face of a very complicated, unpredictable life. He understood that God was faithful, that God was his shield, that God was his protector. He didn't defend himself based on his uh, military prowess and his capacity to win people and influence the world. He trusted in God. Why? Because of the God that he looked at. He was a faithful God. He had seen him be faithful, and he knew he would continue to be faithful. Who are you looking at? What God do you wake up to? Which Bible are you reading to get your revelation of God? I hope that you're seeing what David saw at least in one part. We could spend the rest of our lives looking at the attributes of God. Today, we're just looking at this. He's faithful, Secondly, he's a God who loves to guide. He's a God who loves to guide. Verse four, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. You couldn't dream up a God as kind as this who loves to teach and guide. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in his ways. Oh my gosh, that includes all of us. Yay, he doesn't just instruct the righteous or the perfect. He guides the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his ways. How cool is this? So you've got a king, but you know what he was before he was a king? He was a shepherd. He looked after sheep. So he's got this incredible uh, wealth and this great power, but you know what he likens himself to? A little measly ball of fluff who walked around on the mountainside and couldn't even look after itself, didn't know where to go to find food or water or drink or sustenance. This man of great power looks at himself in the light of God and he says, you're a God. You know what I need. You know where I should go. Please, lead me in the way that I should go. Andrew Wilson says, on their own, sheep might go toward turbulent rivers and fall in or wander from the right path into danger. The shepherd, however, would lead them by still waters and in the right or the righteous paths, taking full responsibility for them, being where he wanted them to be. You would never see a sheep debating with the shepherd about where it was supposed to be going. He's a God who loves to guide. He's a God who, who takes pleasure in taking us to the places we need to go. Verse 14, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. Do you know a God who, who loves to guide? Or are we too busy untying our feet from every trouble that we're in, from every struggle that we go through? We find ourselves maybe trying to untie ourselves, and so the God who guides has his hands tied because we're too busy looking down at our feet. The invitation this morning is to look up. The invitation this morning is to be wowed by the God who loves to guide, the God who is faithful, the God who will be faithful despite our faithful, uh, faithlessness, our unfaithfulness. Charles just left, but I think he's gone with the kids. But uh, Tashis and Charles and myself went up India Fenster, which is up uh, the scariest route I've ever been up to get up Table Mountain. The best route up Table Mountain, by the way, is on the cable car. But there are other routes, I believe. And, uh, and one of them is called India Fenster. And I had two guides, Tashis and Charles. And um, we had one other person with us. Oh, Johannes, yes. And um, oh, my gosh. 
If I didn't have those guys to help me, not only was it terrifying being on the edge of some precipices that were deadly, to say the least, I had these guys showing me where was, where was the, the wisest place to jump, and I was scared, to be honest with you. But to have people guide you is so crucial. It's so important. It keeps you safe. It protects you. Do you see God as a God who guides, or are you so busy controlling your life that you can't actually let Him guide you? He doesn't just guide you to keep you safe. He guides you into adventure. Before Nix and I had kids, we, we spent all the money we had basically to go on one last adventure before the kids arrived, and we went to Spain to Nikki's aunt who's got this uh, house in Menorca, and off the coast of Menorca are these amazing bays, and we just didn't know where we were, but I, you know, and, and, and this guy named Danny, uh, the Nikki's cousin type person, um, <laughs> too long to explain, um, he takes us on this boat. And we just thought the coastline's just a plain old open coastline. Until as the boat gets closer, he takes us into these caves and suddenly you've got dripping water and you've got fish below you and there's stuff that you never thought possible. You can't believe that this coastline is just filled with colors and sights and sounds that you would never, driving past, have even imagined was there. You see, there's these guides who want to take you and keep you safe, but sometimes these guides who want to take you to places you've never been before. With the help of the Holy Spirit, God wants to guide you into revelations of himself that are beyond your wildest dreams. C.S. Lewis laments the, the problem of our generation. He says that human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. How sad. He says the problem with us is not that we settle for too much, but that we settle for too little. He says that we are like, like children playing in the mud at home, not realizing that we've been invited to a holiday at the beach. So we spend so much of our lives groveling in this muddy pile, not realizing that God would have us go to the caves of Menorca. He would have us on the, the precipices of Table Mountain, seeing who he is and what he's like and how faithful he really is. How big is the God that you serve? David said, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. There's nothing I want to ask you to do this week except one high, high challenge. I want to challenge you to worship. I want to challenge you to a week of worship that hopefully fills your life with fresh worship. I want to challenge you to, to try to punctuate your thought life, to punctuate your activities this week with a fresh sense of awe, a thoughtfulness about who God is and what He's like and, and how He might actually see the thing that you're doing right here and right now. Brother Lawrence, he said, whatever we do, we should stop for a few minutes, as often as possible, to praise God from the depth of our hearts, to enjoy Him there in the secret place. He had this amazing ability, Brother Lawrence, in the 1600s, to find God, to live in God's presence. He says, since we believe that God is always with us, no matter what we may be doing, why shouldn't we stop for a while to adore Him, to praise Him, to petition Him, to offer Him our hearts and to thank Him? Listen carefully. He says, this doesn't mean we must ignore the duties of the world forever. That would be impossible. We've got stuff to do. Let prudence be our guide. 
However, I do believe that it is a common mistake of spirit-filled people not to leave the cares of the world periodically, to praise God in their spirits, and to rest in the peace of His divine presence for a few moments. I think I've preached this wrongly over the years. I think in some ways in my life, I have preached a God who must live as the backdrop, the, the stage, and then you do your thing, but God is always in the background. And Brother Lawrence says, I read his book recently. Um, it, it's an amazing reminder. He says, no, God must be in the foreground. He mustn't be in your subconscious guiding everything. He should often be in your conscious, regularly thinking, who is he? What is he like? How big is he in this moment? How can I trust him? How can I give myself freshly to him? How glorious is he that I get to know that he's present with me in this moment? Maybe as the band comes up, I'll share some lessons I've learned in sport that could help you to worship Jesus. Sound cool? Firstly, tennis. Who enjoys a bit of tennis? Oh, Leo, only person who plays tennis, you and me. So what do you do when you play tennis? Do you, do you stare at your racket the whole time? That'd be crazy. The first thing you learn in tennis is watch the... Watch the ball. It's actually counterintuitive. You teach a, a four-year-old, and basically they spend their life staring at the racket. And you say, no, watch the ball. I do it with my kids, and I move, and I say, watch the ball. Don't watch the racket. Don't watch my hand. Watch the ball. And they watch it for a while, and then you throw it, and they stare in my eyes. <laughs> Who can blame them? But you know that that's the, 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 the point? is that so often in our lives, we stare at the stuff in front of us and we don't see the God that calls us to look at Him, to be freshly conscious of Him. Mountain bikers, come back and correct me if I'm wrong, but I know that in mountain biking, the temptation, and I've done this, the temptation is to look right in front of you and to keep looking down and to make sure that you don't do anything silly. But the, the best wisdom I ever got about mountain biking is that you look a couple of meters ahead. Don't look right down. If you look right down, you're going to lose perspective on what's going on up ahead, and you won't be able to do the turns you need to do. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for He will release my foot from the snare. At our men's weekend away, I'll land with this story. We had an amazing moment where people were sharing, and different guys shared, and, and one guy shared how he had been struggling in his own relationship uh, with God and, and his relationship even with himself and struggling with depression. It was also struggling even in, in, in his relationship with his wife. And, and there was just this, there was this sense of not really getting each other. And, and, and if you've been in a marriage, you know how tempting it is to go, you just need to fix yourself and this will all be better. If you got your stuff right, this whole thing would be better. I'd probably even love Jesus more and I would do better at work. It's just mainly your fault, so just fix yourself. And he had this amazing moment where he felt like God whisper, stop looking out at her. Stop trying to fix that stuff. Come be with me. Put your eyes on the ball. Look up. Look ahead. Stop trying to fix everybody else's issue. I want to be with you. And amazingly, he tells the story of how slowly but surely just simply, we don't actually know. I think it's a secret law of the spiritual life that you do your relationship with God and He manages somehow, amazingly, to sort out other people's. 
And he told the story of how amazingly it, it began to become a competition as to who could spend more time with God and, and how they could find themselves more in God's presence and becoming more loving. And, and it wasn't about pointing fingers, it was about looking up. I wonder how many of us are looking out trying to, or looking down trying to fix stuff and God might be saying, just look up today. Look up. Just for a moment, let go, stop. You're in the snare, I get it. You can't get out the snare, you can't fix it. We've been trying all our lives to fix our problems. When last did we fix any of them? I'm 39, still got so many of the same problems. But here, look up. Maybe he can help us. Maybe he is faithful. Maybe he is a guide. Maybe he is holy. Maybe he is who he says he is in Jesus Christ. Maybe he really is filled with mercy. Maybe he can coach me into a whole new level of mental health. Maybe he can coach us into a whole new level of relational thriving. Maybe if I stop looking down and look up. Maybe. I'd suggest definitely. Stand with me and let's pray. Let's make a fresh commitment this morning, if you wouldn't mind, to simply trust, to simply look up. In one way or another, all our feet are in a snare. That's just life. But in every single way, we can look up, and He will remain faithful. He will joyfully guide us. So, Lord, this morning, we just freshly commit. We take a leaf out of Brother Lawrence's book to become a little more conscious of you. We learn from the mountain bikers to not look directly in front of us, but to look ahead, to trust that maybe as we've got our eyes on you, you might be more faithful with our life and our decisions than even we are. You might know better than us. I say that tongue in cheek because you know better than us. And so today, we pray for a fresh wave of worship, a fresh wave of conscious awareness of your grace, fresh invitations, upward invitations to beautiful revelation of who you are. I pray this week that we would see things about you that we've never seen before. God, that we would go on a hiking adventure knowing that, God, there is no end to the trails, to the views, to the sights to the possibilities of life in your kingdom, walking with you. Show us yourself. Teach us to increasingly forget ourselves, knowing that you will never forget us, that we might love you and love others. Let this song be a fresh symbol of our looking towards you, a fresh sign of our not feeling self-conscious about what other people might think as we trust you. Let our body language be a dedication to you that we are yours and we want to know you better. God, for any who are still looking in, still unconvinced about this whole thing, I pray, God, that even this week it would be a, an opportunity for eyes to be open to see God. Maybe the challenge for you this week is open the book of John, read chapter 1, on Monday, chapter two on Tuesday, and go through it and, and let the God of the Bible show you what he's like. You might find he's better than you first thought, more loving than you ever imagined, even though he knows you as well as he does. Use these songs as a communal commitment together that we might know you, Jesus. Let's sing.